You're listening to the winning literary show, Off the Shelf Books Talk Radio, live with host Denise Turney, author of the books Long Walk Up, Portia, Love Pour Over Me, Spiral, Love Has Many Faces, and Rosetta's Great Hope. Turn up your dial and get ready for a blast of feature author interviews, 411 on book festivals, writing conferences, and so much more. Ready? Let's go. If you want to achieve greatness, stop asking for permission. Good morning. You are listening to the winning book radio show off the shelf. And I, you guys, you know what? I'm almost shocked to be saying this. Are you shocked to be hearing it? I'm welcoming you to the October. We're in October. We are headed into the middle of October. I'm like, where did this year go? And it's been full of just one thing after another, hasn't it? But I want to welcome you to this Saturday, October the 10th, 2020, off the shelf. We have an awesome author on deck for you. I have fun researching for the interviews, and I'm like, oh, this is going to be a good interview when I do research for uh, on the authors who are our special guests. But before I introduce to you this phenomenal guest, and we had a fun guest last Saturday, did we not? The stories he shared. But I just want to say to you, I gotta ask you guys, are you do you love mystery? Are you a good mystery sleuth? Are you one of those good I can figure out who done it before it's revealed in the movie, before it's in the book. And do you value relationships? And do enough of us really value relationships? Not just a, a, a maybe a relationship that starts out very complicated and unrewarding, but you between you and a parent, and that's your that's your the clay shaper, your parent, and then also the relationships you have in your adult life. There are these five guys that meet at college in Philadelphia. Their lifelong friendship, they they do very, very well. One goes on the NFL, one's on his way to the Olympics. They from all different parts of the world, but the bond they create. But one of them, is he involved in this murder? And is another one helping him cover it up? And then what about Raymond and Brenda? Are they really meant to be together? And they also meet at college. Go through ups and downs. Do you think... She, she ought to just say, you know what, I'm done. I'm done. Or should she hang in there? If you value relationships, you like romance, you like friendships, and this is a rare bond between these four guys' friendship, and you love a mystery, I encourage you to get a copy of Love Pour Over Me today. It's in ebook and in print. Google, Apple Books, uh, uh, Barnes & Noble, ebook it. Amazon in ebook or in print. Get yourself a copy of Love Pull Over My De- Love Pull Over Me by Denise Turney right now and let me know how you enjoy the book. Drum roll and now let us go and meet our very special off the shelf guest. And our special off the shelf guest this morning is hope I say it right, Helene Kissed. Helene is a wife mother. Helene is a wife mother, <laughs> Dutch strategy consultant, and she is the author of the books Stay Mad, Sweetheart, and In Servitude. And she was chosen as an up-and-coming new author at Bloody Scotland 2018. Ooh, that's a name, isn't it? Her first novel, In Servitude, won the silver medal for Best European Fiction at the Independent Publishers Book Awards. Congratulations to her in the United States, and was shortlisted for the Selfies Awarded at the London Book Fair. Please visit Helene at her official author website, HeleneKiss.com, and I'm going to spell that for you guys, H-E-L-E-E-N-K-I-S-T.com, H-E-L-E-E-N-K-I-S-T.com. HelenKiss.com. You can hop on over there right now, even as you listen to her interview. We are just honored to have Helene join us on Off the Shelf this morning. Welcome, welcome, welcome to Off the Shelf, Helene. Thank you. It's an absolute pleasure to be there. It is, it, and we're delighted to have you here with us and to start digging into your books. But before we get into your books, the first three or four questions I ask you, I ask every Off the Shelf guest, so I can give our listeners a little backstory on our guests without just jumping right into their books. So to kick it off, Helene, can you tell off-the-shelf listeners where you grew up 
and what life was like for you growing up? Well, I, uh, you may hear my accent is a little bit of a muddle. I'm actually Dutch, and my father was a diplomat. So I grew up all over the place, and we tended to move every three years, but like an army brat. And I learned my English in America because I lived in San Francisco when I was 10 to 13, which is a great time, you know, being a preteen in California, about as good as it gets. Um, But before that, I lived in Mexico already. I'd lived in the Netherlands and I'd lived in um, Switzerland. And after San Francisco, we actually went back to the Netherlands, but I stayed at the French school. Um, So it was a very multilingual upbringing that I had. And uh, people now, I live in Scotland. I've lived in Scotland for 20 years. I married a Scotsman. They uh, they can't quite place me with my accent because it's a little bit uh, funny. (laughs) Do you, are you, are you, and you, you traveled a lot, and I was in the Navy, and I know how well, when people, a lot of kids, I was an adult, but they travel around a lot. Uh, it is good in that. You get to see different parts of the world, and then sometimes it's like, oh, I got to go to a new school and make new friends again. But were you an only child, or did you have siblings who were fortunately experiencing all of this with you? I am the youngest of three, actually, and funnily enough, they say among the diplomatic circles that one in three children struggle with the moving around so much. There's three of us, and I have to admit, my brother struggled. I found it uh, interesting, though I wasn't too grateful the two times that we moved at Christmas, because that's tough. You know, you get come into oh, a new yeah. class in school, everybody's made their little friendship groups, and then you come in January, like, hi, hi, be my friend. <laughs> and it's really hard. Um, so if you come at the start of the academic year, it's not too bad. Um, but, you know, for me, I thought it's been great. I speak, um, you know, four and a half languages, I would say. Wow. And I, uh, I've lived in plenty of places. I have friends all over the world. I, I'm still in touch with my oldest friends that I made in San Francisco when I was 10, many, many years ago. And um, I think, you know, it's, it's made me quite extroverted and quite easygoing when it comes to meeting new people. I'm, I'm always up for it. I think people are fascinating. Okay. Now, as a, as a kid, San Francisco, Mexico, the different parts of the world that you fortunately live in and now in Scotland, but when you were a child, when you were dreaming, if you did, what did you, what did you want to be when you grew up? Um, at around the time I lived in San Francisco, I would say I wanted to be an electrician, um, ah. and I did start. Uh, yeah, I don't know why. I think my best friend's dad was an electrician, <laughs> but I I, um, I really liked just playing with wires, and I used to make lamps uh, out of bottles, drill a hole in a bottle, run a you know run a wire through it, make a lamp. Uh, that was fun. And later I became uh, you know a, a little bit more attuned to the corporate life and uh, wanted to be the chief executive of the Dutch National Airline because then you got to fly all over the world for free. I thought that would be really cool. <laughs> oh, I love your sense of ambition. I love that. I think that's awesome. Wanted to be the CEO. Good good for you. Now, who or what inspired you? Well, I didn't promise. <laughs> but, you, but you had enough confidence to, to want to want it. You know, sometimes when we don't have confidence, we don't even like, oh, I could never do that. So we don't even let ourselves dream about it. Who who or what inspired you to pursue writing? And what what birthed your love for books? I was, uh, so as I mentioned, I was in a French school, and they're very big on their literature with a capital L. And I always got Madame Bovary shoved down my throat, frankly, every year. Um, And I didn't particularly enjoy reading, I would say, as a consequence of that. Um, And my mother used to want me to read the the, the books that she liked uh, as a child, but they were in Dutch. And because I was already, you know, in school in French and then maybe in the playground, I was either speaking Spanish or English. I just couldn't be bothered. Um, so I would have to say that, you know, when I was about a teenager, I started reading some uh, more accessible novels by Marcel Pagnol, um, for example, in uh, in French, and I, I really enjoyed that. Um, but I think the reading came more as a grown-up when I, you know, was a little bit more exposed to, frankly, the, the selection that was out there, and I have a particular... Uh, interest and love for crime and mystery and and the kind of stuff that you write, Denise, and that I write. 
And um, so that came, I would say, much later. We do have a big library in the house now, and, and I, I'm one of these terrible people that actually gives away books when the, when the bookshelves are full rather than get new bookshelves. Um, but what inspired me to write was actually it's coming back to that sense of ambition where I had seen some people that I had known at university in the Netherlands, so I studied chemistry in Holland originally, um, and they wrote some books. And then a guy from my high school wrote a thriller, kind of a Dan Brown. Really, it was nice. It was called The Moroccan General. It, it was in French. And uh, it's been translated in English as well. His name is Amin Jemai. And I thought, I don't remember him being any good at school. <laughs> you know, I don't remember him being particularly literary. And I really enjoyed his, uh, you know, his pacey style. I like a lot of James Patterson for on holidays, on my vacation. So I thought, you know, if, if Amin can do it, I bet I could do it. And, and really, I'd like to say it's my friends who inspired me. I, uh, I then kind of told my Facebook friends very publicly on the 1st of January 2017, this year I shall write a book. Because that way, wow. You know, I, I just couldn't back out anymore. They were going to hold me to it. I know them. So 2017, three three years ago, because I was going to ask you, how old were you when you knew you wanted to be a writer? So you were an adult. Some people, they've known, they say uh, in 16 years of doing Off the Shelf, we've had guests on, they, they knew very, very young. And then some say they, uh, somebody dared them. Oh, you can't, you can't win a writing contest. Oh, I dare you to to write this, and then that, that's how they got started. And so uh, yours seemed to happen just step by step, organically. And now here you are, 2017, posting on your Facebook page, sort of like holding yourself accountable to actually get it done. Which might kind of lead into my next question before we start talking about your novel in servitude. But can you tell us? I've never heard of this term before. What is what does a strategy consultant do? Um, they, the joke they make about strategy consultants is that they come and borrow your watch to tell you the time. Um, and we basically, it's a, it's a professional services. You go, um, we work with uh, companies or the public sector, government, and we help them with their strategy. And that strategy can be, how do I grow? How do I change the way my business operates? How do I set up something new? What, what other business should I merge with? And, and it's basically as an advisor using um, a range of tools. There's a lot of, you know, mathematical modeling, maybe logic and, and number crunching associated. But there's also the creativity that is quite similar in many ways to writing a novel. And we could talk about that if you wanted, where you have to imagine a, a different range of futures and then decide how are you going to achieve that future that you want to have. Interesting. Yeah, Interesting. so there's some big big companies all over the world that offer these services. I used to work for one. It's called McKinsey, and uh, they, um, they've been around for a long time. But I then, uh, when I moved to Scotland, I became self-employed and have been doing it myself for about 18 years now, independently. Wow. You did become a CEO. See there? And you know what? what yeah. What is kind of <laughs> interesting I've never heard of that. You imagine different types of futures. Is it just, I'm just curious now and for our listeners who, whether they're authors and they're thinking, do they start writing film, uh, plays, or television, or go into a different space uh, uh, altogether? Are you, are you, when you're imagining that future, and I'm not going to get too far down this path, but are you imagining a, the world being totally different or your, your business or yourself? You're saying, okay, now imagine five years from now you're completely different. How, and so you, how, what would you have to do to get there? How does, how does, just curious, how then do you help the company or the person decide? Because I think that's a, that job you have, I can see something like that really, really taking off, even for an individual. It's more than a life coach. How do you how do you help somebody see? Oh, but this is the future I do want. Yeah, and it's uh, it's interesting that you say you know it's as much for people as it is for companies. It, in a sense, it's easier for companies because if you think about this uh, proper company that that you know is looking to make money, 
um, but also provide, you know, other goals. Maybe you have a have a sustainability strategy and, and obviously take good care of your people. You you look at, well, how do you make money? Well, I make money by selling things to customers. Okay, well, how can you make more money from each thing you sell for the customer or how do you get more customers? And you can you can do it stepwise like that and say, okay, but if I, you know, say I sell a widget that almost everybody in the world already has, then there isn't much more room to grow. So you have to come up and maybe invent a new widget or you have to realize that your widget, if you turned it upside down, actually works for a new industry and you can have a whole new group of clients. And so that's the creativity there that needs to come in. And it's, you know, all the big companies like Apple and, you know, the makers of Dawn dishwashing liquid, which is where I started my career, you know, they all need to keep inventing and keep coming up with new ways to increase the number of customers they have, make sure their customers stay. Um, also, you know, don't make them angry. Don't do things that <laughs> annoy them and, and get them to buy more of your stuff. So in a sense for a company, it's easier, but ultimately, whether it be for a company or for an individual, there are some similarities with the character arcs that we draw as novelists for our characters, where somebody, you know, has, has a want, you know, this, this want to make money, but they also have a need, which is to learn something about themselves. And the strategy consultants can help the company learn what is best, what is good about them so that they can become the best version of themselves and, you know, face the obstacles, face, you know, go save the princess from the castle and, and vanquish the, the dragon. Um, it, it's quite similar in some ways because the companies will do well when they are the ve- best version of themselves. Interesting. Oh, my goodness. For some reason, that's very interesting, the work that you do. I appreciate you sharing that. Now to your books. Now, in your novel, In Servitude, I, I wanted to ask you, why does Grace take over her sister Gloria's cafe, Glory's Cafe? Um, so Grace, uh, uh, you know, Glory dies. That's the first sentence, so it's not a spoiler. But Grace has a, has a sister, Glory, who has a lovely family and a lovely home, and she has... Um, a vegan cafe that she started running and it had a little bit to do with um, feeling like being a a mother to two lovely young boys wasn't enough and she wanted to do something and when Glory dies Grace takes over primarily I would say because Grace is a little bit of a control freak Um, and uh, she wanted to to uh, make sure that it was in good hands. Glory's husband wouldn't be in any mental state to deal with it. In fact, Glory's husband didn't actually want Glory to have the cafe. So Grace feels that Glory's cafe is a part of her sister that she can keep and that she can work with. Of course, when she does that, she discovers things about her sister she probably didn't want to discover. Yeah, I was going to ask you next, how did Glory get tangled up with the with the local crime lord. And can you, before you answer that, and maybe I should have started with this, can you just describe a little bit both sisters? And is it just the two sisters in the family? Can you describe them, like their personalities? Absolutely. So they are two sisters, and they come from a city in Scotland called Perth, which is, which is quite a small city. And, in fact, it's where my in-laws live, which is why I picked it. Um, but then they, in adulthood at college, they uh, moved to Glasgow. And Glasgow is where I live currently. And it's a big city, relatively speaking, compared to the U.S. Of course, it's a small city, but it has about a million people. And it is quite known for crime. Um, historically and still today, there, there is a, a lot of, um, you know, under, underprivileged population. And, and there is a lot of crime still. So it's, it's always a good setting for crime stories. They come to the city. Um, they grow apart as Glory, who is much more of an extrovert and very ebullient um, and loves the boys, um, becomes uh, involved with the, the man who becomes her husband. Grace is a lot more introverted. She doesn't need people quite so much. She's quite judgy, uh, I would say, at times, but she is fiercely loyal and which is why when she she goes on to this this journey uh, throughout the book, you know her loyalty to her family is a, is an incredibly important thing. 
Grace is, uh, sorry, Glory is, uh, we, we only know of her as you read the book but through, through flashbacks and, and referenced by other people because, of course, she's dead. And uh, she is just um, wants to have more fun in life than maybe her very senior, serious personal trainer sister wants to or is able to. Ah, very different. They both look quite similar. Yeah, they look similar. They both have flaming red curls. But, uh, you know, Glory, the, the, the wilder child, will also wear very colorful clothing, whereas Grace is a personal trainer and she's, you know, austere and, and will wear, you know, sports clothes, black, gray. Um, so they are, they are very different. And now, how, how were they close when they were growing up? Uh, again, and then I want to re-ask you that other question. But are they close when they come up? Are they how far apart are they in age first? And are they close? Did they have a good friendship as sisters growing up together? Absolutely. Um, they're only eighteen months apart, which again wow. is an inspiration for my life. I have I have two children eighteen months apart myself. And um, they were very close, living in this small town. Glory was the more popular at high school, but they hung out together uh, also with a, a third friend called Alice, who also plays a part in the book and, you know, is, is, the, is the memory, if you like. When she goes and visits Alice, it's a lot of the, the old stuff comes back and the old stories and the good feelings come back. But Alice is also the one who, of all the people in the book uh, can be the most objective about how Glory was. And I think that Grace idolized her sister and they were close, but maybe Glory wasn't uh, as loyal as, as Grace is. Uh, now, how in the world did Glory get tangled up with the local crime lord? How in the world did she get caught up in that life? Well, I don't want to give too much away, but uh, essentially she was uh, the victim of, of some misplaced ambition. Um, the place where she wanted to set up this vegan cafe was gentrifying. So it's a, it's a part of town that is near where I live, and it's quite nice. And But, but they are becoming more and more shishi in the types of shops that are there and the cafes and, you know, large sacks of avocados. And um, she thought that a vegan cafe would do well. And sadly, it doesn't do as well as she thought. And she gets behind on the rent. And that uh, her inability to deal with that because she doesn't want to admit it to her husband. She, you know, this is supposed to be her endeavor she wants to prove to people that she can do this and obviously would lose a lot of face if she were to admit that she was failing. She thinks she can get out of it, uh, but before she knows it, unfortunately, she's um, in the clutches of Glasgow's underworld. Wow. You, and you know what? I watch uh, real-life shows that I watch. We care so much of what other people think of us. It's almost like a prison we we live in. And the only way to get free is just to love yourself and stop caring so much. But how many people make decisions? I, oh, my God, I've watched TV shows because they didn't want anybody to know they were struggling. They didn't want anybody to know the company was failing, so they started doing stuff. And then it's like a lot of them end up in prison. It's just, I'm like, oh, my God, just say it's failing and go on with it and just do something else or don't dig a deep hole for yourself. Can you, and this story in servitude sounds so intriguing. One thing about Off the Shelf I love, when I listen to the authors, and I'm sure our listeners as well, you listen to the author talk about the book, and then you're like, I want to get this book. It's just when the author starts answering the questions, it just reveals so much more, and it makes it more intriguing. Can you introduce, you've introduced us to Glory and Grace, born 18 months apart, like night and day different. But they did love each other. Can you introduce us to some of the other major and minor characters who will keep readers turning the pages in, in servitude? Yeah, so their parents actually uh, are, are quite important in the book, which is why it's set in the two cities, you know, Glasgow where they live and then Perth where they're from, because unfortunately their mother is starting to suffer from dementia, which their father has been hiding from them. And so on top of losing a sister, discovering her sister was embroiled with criminals. She also learns, Grace also learns that her mother is, 
is not doing well. And it is because her mother isn't doing well that her father, who is a, a big bear of a man, um, he uh, he's actually modeled on my my father-in-law, <laughs> a big bear of a man who goes and and you know goes and sneaks a cigarette in the garden, then everybody pretends he doesn't actually <laughs> smoke. <laughs> Um, and and it's a very it's a close family. Although you do get through some some flashbacks and stories that you you understand that the mother was quite harsh. You know, she was a very strict mother, oh. and um, so that makes it even more difficult for for Grace to know what to do with a mother who's now sometimes you know a little bit violent, sometimes a little bit confused, sometimes particularly affectionate. Um, but because of her mother's condition, her father puts a puts a big demand on her. Again, I won't spoil it, but it is a it is an important part of the plot ultimately. Um, the other person uh, that uh, there's a few other characters. I mean, they're not too many characters. There's obviously some baddies, um, but uh, in terms of the the ones that are closest to the family, Dave is Grace's boyfriend. Um, Dave is a plumber. And he is, uh, you know, he's a good man and, and they have this relationship. And whenever Grace is trying to, essentially, she gets caught up with the, the gangster issue and and they then have a hold on her and she tries to get out from under that. And she tries to continuously um, still keep glory secrets because she doesn't want her sister's reputation in death to be tarnished. Her boyfriend, Dave, doesn't agree with this. Um, because there is some history between Dave and Glory also uh, that wasn't uh, particularly friendly. So when he discovers that Glory is causing so much problems with with his girlfriend, he just encourages her to let go. Um, But unfortunately, Grace is tremendously tenacious and stubborn, and she won't let go. Uh, And then lastly, we have Stephen, uh, who is Glory's husband, and he's he's a proud man. He comes uh, also from the same part of Glasgow as Dave, so it's a, a, an underprivileged area of Glasgow. And but he has, uh, you know, bootstrapped himself into being somebody reasonably important in the city council. And for him, appearances are everything. Also, so from that perspective, he and Glory um, fed off each other and and you know presented this front of perfect families. Um, but uh, so so he's there, and there are two boys who are just adorable. And there's a Rhymeraner dog called Blue, who some of my readers say that's their favorite character, which which is lovely, but also a little bit insulting. So I'm not quite sure what to think about that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, maybe you just did a good with bringing it out. I don't know, but it's amazing what goes through your mind when somebody transitions. So, you know, it's a novel, but we these are like experiences that people have in real life. Now, you touch on this, you know, all that goes through your mind. They're, they're, you're not going to see the person again. And you touch on this during the opening of In Servitude. And Grace is moaning. She's moaning about the bank, the boys, the car, the police, et cetera. How did you get this insight to tap in that, so that the reader can really feel it and maybe even remember a time in their life when they were faced with such, like this, all this memory and and of the person and what all you now have to deal with that that they brought on, but now you, like, have to deal with it. How did you get this insight as a writer uh, to present this this way in a story? $64,000 question. I don't know where ideas uh, come from. I'm, I'm thankfully, my siblings are alive. Um, I have wanted to kill my sister on occasion, but not <laughs> truly. Um, but um, I think I, I am a very empathetic person, uh, but I'm also very practical. And I think that that's actually, in a sense, a nice combination for this particular topic, because you imagine what it would be like, you know, and I can get upset just thinking about that. You imagine what it'd be like to lose your husband or your sister or your parents, um, which thankfully I, I have not had to deal with yet. And um, and just the whole idea, you know, the, the big part of Grace is she is very organized and, and very straight because if she doesn't keep control of everything she loses out to anxiety so she's had childhood anxiety she's mastered it but it comes back obviously and so 
you can imagine that with this this influx of problems, the anxiety is just rising and rising, and and the more it rises, the more control she needs to take, and and that control leads her to do some stupid things. Wow, this book is sounding more and more interesting. Now, last question on on in servitude: What inspired you to write the story? Why this particular story? It started with the idea that I wanted two sisters, uh, one would die and one would have a problem as a consequence of that. And that really was the bare bones of it. Um, And then it was just a little bit of brainstorming in terms of, you know, what could somebody have done wrong? And again, because I live in Glasgow and because I wanted to set it in Glasgow, in fact, you know, Glory's house is my house and I'm very lazy when it comes to research, (laughs) then... um, you know, it, it is a it is a city that I'm making it sound like a terrible city. It's actually a lovely city. Please come and visit. We have lovely museums and everything, <laughs> but it, is, it does also have it does also have you know a dark underbelly. Uh, and I thought it should have something to do with gangsters. Um, and you know, again, I don't want to uh, give away too much of the plot, but you know, Grace turns out to uh, uncover more about those shady dealings from the gangsters um, and is able to to do some good as a consequence of that. Okay, so I wasn't going to ask you another, any other questions about the book, but I have to ask you this, just listening to you. I, I've never been to, like, Glasgow. Or, if a reader, I've read some books that I actually feel like I was in the city as the writer, or I was back in the 1800s as the writer told the story. Could a reader feel like, oh, I know more about this city after reading In Servitude. Do you touch on the city? Is it the city almost like a character in the story where the reader is like, oh, my God, I'm so glad I read this, not only the plot and the characters, but like I really felt like I got to know the city itself. I do have a few reviewers, uh, a few reviews for my books that say that. You know, They'll say, I've never been to Scotland, but it, you know, I could really – get a sense for the different neighborhoods um, because it's, it's even in, in Glasgow, you know, we visit different neighborhoods. We go and visit uh, the, you know, where, where the gangsters warehouse is, one where there's a bar where they hang out. Um, so it touches not just on the city, but also on some of the um, things that are going on in Scotland. So there's, you know, the tiny little scene that has a reference to the independence referendum that we had in 2014 which uh, where Scotland uh, was asked whether they wanted to become independent from the rest of the United Kingdom, and they, they said no. Um, but that is, you know, it was a very divisive moment for the country uh, in the same way that, you know, your upcoming elections are, are divisive. And, and so, you know, it touches on those issues and the, the issues of social economic disparity in, in the city that is Glasgow, the, you know, Glory and Stephen now live in a very lovely detached home in a in a nice leafy area, and you get that described. And you know, the the moms at the school gates who are all you know with with their blow dried hair. Um, but at the same time, you go visit different areas, or or Steve and Dave come from areas where where you know it 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 really. Well, there's an area called Govan which used to have a higher mortality rate than Iraq. Um, wow. and, and you know, so you you get to see the different faces of Glasgow. Oh, now how soon after you published in Servitude did you start writing on Stay Mad, Sweetheart? And I love that title. I love the way you say it. It's the absolute best accent to say it in. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, let me think. So I published in Servitude in August 2018. I self-published that one because, you know, as I said, I just kind of, it wasn't a decision to become a writer as a career. I just decided to write a book. And and that book was meant to be something that my friends would buy and my mom would read. And I didn't really have the hugest ambition for it. But then when I had some, uh, I had set myself the target, as you know, of Christmas. And I had also therefore organized some strangers, some editors and beta readers to read it at Christmas. And therefore, I could not fail but deliver on that time. Um, and they just went nuts for it, you know. And I thought, oh, my God, it's a real book. You mean it's a real, real book? <laughs> a little bit. You know, obviously, I thought it was good. Otherwise, I wouldn't have, you know, written it the way it 
was, but it was still a very nice validation. And so um, I ended up, you know, self-publishing. I was selected, as you said, on, on Bloody Scotland, which is a literary festival that takes place once a year in Stirling, right by the castle, as an up-and-coming author. And that really opened the doors to, you know, building a lot of re- relationships in publishing and with the book bloggers and, you know, some uh, other people. And so when I wrote Stay Mad, let me think, I would have started straight after then, probably September 2018, finished in March 2019, and then it was published with a small independent press called Red Dog Press in November 2019. So all fairly fast, because I'm I'm, I'm a pretty impatient person. So the whole publishing industry with the six months to get an agent to even answer, you know, your email um, is a little bit tricky for me. (laughs) Okay, good for you, good for you. I think that's a quick turnaround, and they do tell authors, uh, I don't have, like, real quick turnarounds with my books. I just promote, promote, market, 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 but I do have two new ones coming out. But they tell authors if you can bring one out, like, once a quarter, you can really build your, your audience base, and some writers have done that, and after five, ten years of it, they're making a very, very nice income. Well, well, into Absolutely. And, that, and that's not for everybody, but that's... That's one path I've heard writers say, you know, it might not be to that ninth or tenth book, and then boom, it takes off. So, uh, yeah, but that's a good quick turnaround that you have. So Yeah, so I do one a year, which is not one a quarter, but one a year. I've written my third also, but I haven't uh, figured out how I'm going to bring that one to the market yet. Well, good for you. I mean, kudos. Uh, Can you give off-the-shelf listeners an overview of Stay Mad, Sweetheart? Absolutely. So Stay Mad Sweetheart is uh, quite different to my first novel in Servitude and that it is set in a corporate setting. It's a lot closer to my day job, if you like, but it's the story of um, Laura, who is a very shy, bookish data scientist, uh, co-founder of a data science startup, which is doing very well, and it's about to be acquired by like a you know, Google-like entity, and her best friend, Emily, who um, has a date with a famous movie star that ends up in an area of uh, questionable consent. And when she writes about that experience on a blog, uh, the world explodes, uh, as has been the case in real life for similar situations, um, based a bit on the Aziz Ansari story, and she then gets hounded and trolled uh, online, and that uh, flows into offline, into real life. And so that has very damaging impact on Emily, and Laura vows to find the culprits who have been uh, harassing her. And in doing so, while at the same time, as I say, her, her business is being, uh, is being prepped for, for sale, and her partner, Justin, is very keen to, to have the sale go through. And there's a young woman called Suki, who is the corporate financier. So the corporate financier is like a, a matchmaker. They, they work alongside the lawyers to get the deal done. Um, and, and while she and Suki are working on getting all the paperwork together, they're also working with a woman called Claire, who is in the event planner who was already planning the uh, annual conference, but they're going to announce this big deal at the annual conference. And as we follow these these two intertwining stories, um, the women discover that that each of them has been treated fairly uh, in the workplace. And, And ultimately, it becomes a kind of, you know, revenge pact that they make to they, they join forces basically to wreak havoc on uh, on the people who have, uh, have treated them unfairly so the book really is, is a bit of a feminist thriller i want to okay. call it but it's not anti-male by any stretch you know i have a lot of huge male fans for this book because it's very nuanced it tackles really the gray areas of consent the gray areas of discrimination the gray areas of harassment where you know, somebody might think this was a bad thing and somebody else might think, well, was it because of that? Was it because of something else? So it's, it's quite a, an intelligent book from that point of view because it really makes you think about 
all these situations. What would I do? What would I think? You know, would that be my view? Uh, but at the same time, it's a, it's a very fast-paced, fun, um, dark, at times very dark at times, but also just kind of this, you know, imagine the movie 9 to 5 and the first Wives Club, you know, those things from the 90s and 80s, that, that kind of vibe it has. Now, how old is Laura, and is she, uh, is she, is she ambitious? Is she driven? How does she like? Well, she, yeah. So she's twenty-five, um, oh, she's and young. she's got, you know, yeah, she's young. These these women are young compared to my other uh, other characters. So these women are all in their mid twenties. They're ambitious, but Laura is. She just likes to do the work so she loves data science and 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 what she builds is basically computer models that look at uh if you imagine you're in you're in your company and you guys are all writing emails to each other her her uh, computer program can look at the language that you use and then determine oh denise is a little bit upset today wow denise is very satisfied with her job right now maybe we should you know have a chat to her and and these are things that are being developed in real life. You know, it's called natural language processing, and they can tell a lot from words. It gets used by online businesses, say Amazon or something, you know, and, and you write complaints, and they'll analyze the text of complaints to, to say, okay, so this is a, you know, somebody is unhappy here or somebody is happy, and, and it's to do with a mattress, you know, and they can work out from, from uh, the language that's being used what the what the emotional state of the person is. And so that's the kind of models that she works on. And Laura loves language. She's an avid reader of books and always has been. And so there's a couple of funny little references, literary references throughout the book. But this this love of language is what keeps her going and it's love of language that solves the mystery, ultimately. Um, and uh, so she is ambitious in that she wants to do a good job and she loves the work that she does, but she is not interested in the money that comes with the uh, the sale of the business. She's not interested in being the face of the business by any stretch, and that's where Justin, you know, thrives, and, and that's kind of the role that they agreed, and that's why it becomes a little bit of a gray area when she discovers that maybe she didn't get as much of the pie as she should have, um, because you, they then try to argue that it's different, and but you haven't done the same, and so it's, it's, it's quite difficult. Suki, on the other hand, the corporate financier, is tremendously ambitious, and she is she is small in stature. Her her parents are uh, originally from Thailand, and she uh, she wears the highest heels that you can imagine because she won't she doesn't want to, to be. Uh, at anything other than eye level with with the people that she's negotiating with, and she's she's a force of nature. I absolutely love Suki. Wow! You oh my goodness! I'm loving these books. Now introduce off the shelf listeners to Emily. Uh, Miss Emily, I know she has a spotlight in the story. If you could tell us a little bit more about her. Yeah, Emily uh, works for a public relations firm, so she is Laura's best friend from when they were little, and they grew up again in a very small town in Scotland called Peebles, which is down in the borders in the south side near England, Um, and uh, Laura's mother still lives there, and Emily's parents still live there, and so we we get to hear a little bit about that town also, Um, and I picked that town because it's... um, uh, two reasons. One is because uh, a friend of mine lives there, uh, and the other is because my daughter's uh, librarian is called Mrs. Peebles, and, uh, which is the place name. And because my daughter is an absolute avid reader, a bit like Laura, I thought it would be n- nice to, name, uh, to, to choose Peebles as, as an homage to the librarian. Um, so Emily and Laura uh, were, you know, little Girl Scouts together, all of that. Um, they moved to the big city of Edinburgh. Uh, you do get a sense of place of Edinburgh as well, um, obviously, as a reader. And if you know Edinburgh, then there are a lot of places you recognize, you know, features the university and, and other places. And she, uh, she is ambitious. She works in public relations. Um, but as I say, so she meets this Hollywood actor, Adam Mooney, who um, at, a, at the premiere of a movie that she has organized the event for. 
and you know they they have an evening um, and it doesn't quite go according to plan and um, she she writes about it and you know the question then becomes was that a mistake because from a personal point of view we meet her in in chapter two when she's already at the end of her tether she is she is she hasn't been going to work you meet her in her apartment she's you know her slippers are kicking dust bunnies around her sink is a disgrace you know the the uh, the trash is overflowing um and she's emotionally not doing well at all and and laura who isn't the, the worldliest person at the best of times um doesn't really know how to help but she does phone her every day oh oh my goodness Sound like a lifetime movie. Now, is Stay Mad, <laughs> Sweetheart, is it based on real life events? Did you take little snippets? Because uh, certainly these types of things have happened and that's made major news here, I know, in the United States yeah. with a movie producer. But is it based on real life events, little snippets of real life, life events, or something you were aware of and you turned it into a novel? Yeah, I mean, the whole point of this one was to illustrate not just the bigger stories like these where, you know, the the whole Me Too movement obviously is incredibly important for, for all women. And, you know, there, there are stories coming out, but a lot of the, the stories that were coming out were very much about black and white. You know, that was wrong and, and, and that was on the right side of the line and that was on the wrong side of the line. But... My realization was with the Aziz Ansari situation, where if you recall, he's an actor who um, had taken a, a woman back to his hotel room uh, after after a date, and she then wrote about uh, their sexual encounter. You know, I realized in seeing when that blew up that not all women think the same. Not all women think the line is in the same place, and I thought that was a very interesting premise. So. Really, this book is all about just sticking in that gray area. Some some bits are obviously, you know, bad, and some bits are obviously fine. But there is a lot, a huge amount of gray area in this book, which I enjoyed playing with um, from a, from an everyday gender discrimination, everyday sexual, uh, you know, harassment. Just you know, and it comes from my own experience of walking down the road and somebody saying, you know, hey, smile, honey, you know, and that sort of stuff. It's it's relentless, and and so I wanted to paint that picture without it necessarily being, you know, a big story about sexual assault. It it's you know a lot of what happens in the book is is little, but it's insidious and it happens all the time, uh, and so I illustrate even little things like. Um, my personal experience, for example, is that I will not, in a meeting, uh, in a workplace, I will not be the one to offer to make coffee when I am the only woman or one of the few women in the room because that is such a conditioned thing that people expect to happen that I actively go against that. And so, you know, those those kind of little situations feature in the book as well. But, you know, people calling you girl, the guys, the, the men shaking the men's hands, but not the women's hands. You know, all these little microaggressions that happen, they're in there. Um, and, it, you know, yes, the book has, has something to say. It clearly has something to say, but it is, uh, it doesn't tell you the answer. It just asks the question, you know, what can we do to, to make these people, you know, stop doing what they're doing or where is the line or how do we... How do we make sure that, that, you know, people feel comfortable in the workplace, in essence? But at the same time, it's done, you know, in a, in a fast-paced, suspenseful novel that has a plot, that has lots of twists. And, and so I hope that people get the message. The reviews certainly suggest people get the message. And, and I've had uh, male readers email me to say I really opened their eyes to things and they were going to become much more of an ally in the workplace, which, of course, is the ultimate result. Um, but at the same time, it's just a, it's just a good story, you know. And that's a that's a good a good benefit from uh, Stay Mad, Sweetheart. Now you kind of alluded to my next question, touched on a little bit, touched and go. How much fun was it to is it to write a thriller? Just how much fun is that? It's a lot of fun. I mean, part of uh, what I enjoy doing most in my job is the problem solving, you know, is to say, okay, this is where we want to go, but this is in the way and I've got this obstacle and I don't know how I'm going to get over it. And 
not going to, I don't know how I'm going to reach my goal. And so the same is true in, in novel writing. And um, now I am, a, it seems very different to most writers in that I plot exhaustively before I even start writing. So I know exactly what's going to happen. My outlines are like 13,000 words long. It's like a sixth of a book. Wow. <laughs> I have written everything out because every little red herring and every little, you know, clue, I want to know where it is so that I know that there are no plot holes because I'm a bit of a perfectionist and, you know, I'm very logic driven. So um, I need that for me and other writers don't. They just need to know the beginning and the end and they just make it up as they go along. Um, but so because I, I get to puzzle for, you know, a good month or two months, it'll take me to puzzle everything out. And then I start writing. It's actually the, the puzzling is the fun. And then when you start writing, it's how do I bring this to life? You know, who are these people? Who are these characters? What, why, you know, the, the, the fact that Suki cooks off her shoes at an important point in time in the book, you know, that's this little details like that, all the color that you get to add, the emotion that you get to put in the story comes when you're writing it. So I feel like I get two periods of, of joy. One is the problem solving and the other is, is bringing things to life. Okay. Now, will there be a sequel to Stay Mad, Sweetheart? Oh, maybe someday. Maybe someday because I think Suki takes over a little bit just because I love her so much. And I think there is uh, there is an opportunity for, you know, potentially a series if people are willing to read about corporate finance and corporate shenanigans a little bit more. Um, I think, you know, in a John Grisham style, even though that's more uh, lawyerly. I think uh, there's certainly an opportunity. I'm, I'm currently plotting my fourth book, um, and she makes an appearance in there. So she, she clearly hasn't left me. Uh, Laura is, is, I think Laura's story has, has finished. I mean, she might show up, but I think the, the oomph and the power that Suki brings to things could, could make it a lot of fun to, to write another one. How did you come up with that title? <laughs> Stay mad, sweetheart. How did you come up with the title for the book? Well, I, I it was called Smile on Demand at first, oh. because obviously that's what we are asked to do often. And then I was on Twitter. I spend way too much time on Twitter, so if you want to follow me, it's HKist. Um, I was on Twitter, and somebody was having an argument, and I saw somebody write Stay Mad, Sweetheart. And I went, oh, my God, that's it? That's it? Wow. <laughs> Get out of here. Great great title. Interesting how it came about. Now, who drew the illustration for your book cover? I love the illustration. And what was that like working with the illustrator? Yeah, so um, I came up with the concept myself. Of uh, so it's a, it's a, it's an eye, uh, but the texture of the cover is all made up of little images. And oh, and I chose all the little images, um, and because they are all images of, of, of women in the workplace or other things that that feature in the book. So in this novel, you not only have a cat, but you also have a ferret. And and so if you look microscopically at some of the images in the in the in the book cover, you'll have the occasional ferret <laughs> as well. <laughs> So it's it's like a mosaic made up of of images of of workplace and things that happen in the book, but then that gets turned into this big eye and this ve- big vengeful eye in essence that is looking at at the back of a man, um, and that is um, the uh, the design. So the I worked with the the publishers and and the designer that they use also who uh I never met actually it was all via email and back and forth um to to create the uh the final cover which is great wow oh i love that cover i just pulled it up again <laughs> for Elizabeth stay mad sweetheart helene helene kiss can you share um three to four steps you've taken as we come down to the last five minutes of today Show. Can you share three to four steps you've taken, Helene, that you found to be effective at getting the word out about your books? Yeah, 
Yeah, I think, um, I don't know what the situation is in the U.S., but certainly in the U.K., there's a very tight uh, and, and, and large community of book bloggers, so people who absolutely adore reading books and then write reviews on their blogs, and they are tremendous supporters of, you know, independent authors who find it much harder to get their books out there. So I was uh, lucky enough that within Servitude, I approached a few book bloggers and I met a few at Bloody Scotland, the, the literary festival, and they were willing to review my book. And then you just get a little bit more visibility and you get a little bit more credibility. Now, you know, it used to be that you, you Googled my name and you get all my business stuff, and now you Google my name and it's all book bloggers writing about my books. Um, and so I found that uh, very good. I tried to um, send the book to some people who, who might be influencers in a particular area, particularly a same-out sweetheart. You know, uh, I sent it to a professor in, uh, at Stanford, actually, in, in data science who was doing she runs a conference on women in data science. And I thought, oh my God, you have to read this book. And on top of that, she was Dutch. So I just sent it to her and she loved it. And then, you know, she had this big virtual uh, international event uh, that she held the book up uh, and said, hey guys, you need to read this because it's about wow. a woman. Wow. Um, awesome. Which is great. Awesome. Yeah. Awesome. Oh my goodness! And then I get to speak with Denise on the radio. <laughs> oh, just taking that initiative and getting out there, and you know, like you say, radio interviews, and somebody who's an influencer—not only a book blogger, book reviewer, but the the lady at Stanford—that they they specialize in this area, and I think they would enjoy it. And for her to do that, what well, I mean, that is just awesome. Can you give us a glimpse? Uh, we only have about three minutes left, but can you give us a glimpse? into the next book that off-the-shelf readers can expect to see on the market from you. Thank you. Yes, it's uh, more in line with Inservitude again, so it's a domestic suspense. Um, that involves gangsters. It's set in Glasgow again, and it's the story of Radha, who is a um, dentist, and she becomes traumatized by the death of a patient in her chair, which then reawakens some other past trauma in her life. Her mother died, and she becomes hooked on Valium. Basically, she starts Ooh. popping pills, um, which is a real problem. I mean, again, all I'm trying to do is illustrate real-life problems that people face. She becomes hooked on pills, and when she can no longer uh, you know, get her hands on them without endangering her dental practice, which she shares with her husband, she uh, goes online, but then the website that she chooses happens to be owned by the local criminals, and they recognize who she is when she picks up the parcel and uh, blackmail her, essentially, into dealing through her clinic. And, wow. Um, you, you, you're right. These, oh, my God. Here she is, a strategy consultant writing these awesome thrillers. <laughs> Oh my God! Yeah, and again, you know she's she's in her forties. She's you know undergoing perimenopause. She's got a teenage son who's distancing, uh, which is a very normal thing to do. But she loves him, and she you know she doesn't want that to happen. And so there's a lot of recognizable emotion for working women, working mothers. You know, the, again, the the mothers at the school gates as well, who aren't always very friendly. But on top of that, Radha is from a Indian family, so her her parents came um, via Uganda actually to to the UK, and so she has that additional pre um, pressure of the aunties, you know, all the the aunties and uncles, the friends of her parents who are all watching you grow up, watching you what you do. Everybody lives in the same area, uh, same part of town, which again is my part of town. So. You know, these characters are people I see around me. I hope they're not hooked on drugs, but they could be. Um, and I do have I do have a, a, a number of uh, friends who are dentists, and my sister-in-law is a dentist, and so that's why I chose a dentist, because, wow. again, it's it's my research that consists of having drinks with my friends. Where can off-the-shelf listeners get copies of your book, Celine? My books, both In Servitude and Stay Mad Sweetheart, are available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble and, you know, most most 
bookstores. Uh, Stay Mad Sweethearts on Kobo as well. In Servitude is not in the ebook. Um, and uh, the next one, I don't know yet. It's not out yet. But yeah, they're they're widely available if you just search for my name or or the titles of the books. Oh my goodness, what a pleasure! I just enjoyed this interview. We have had the absolute delight of interviewing author Helene Kist, and that's H E L E E N. There's two E's. Three E's actually in her name, H-E-L-E-E-N-K-I-S-T. Her website, H-E-L-E-E-N-K-I-S-T.com. Please visit her online and go out and support her and get copies of her books. Didn't they sound delightful? Listeners, stay mad, sweetheart, and in servitude. Again, Helene Kiss, H-E-L-E-E-N-K-I-S-T.com. Thank you, Helene, for being here with us. To, uh, this morning on Off the Shelf, so enjoyed you. And I thank all of our listeners for being here with us. Remember, set your clock, set your calendar, Saturday morning, Eastern Standard Time or New York City Time, 11 a.m., Saturday morning, 11 a.m., New York City Time, Eastern Standard Time. You're going to catch Off the Shelf, and you're going to be so treated with authors like Helene Kiss. Wasn't, she was just fabulous today. And remember, as I always tell you, you are awesome. You are amazing. You are phenomenal. Go out and create an awesome day for yourself. Helene, I'll shoot you an email when the show finishes streaming. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Bye for now. Thank you.